chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, continuing our series here on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. There are some extra blue Bibles and some of the baskets in the seat in front of you. Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Lord, I can't imagine in many ways a heavier text than this in Scripture, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so would you give us an extra dispensation of your grace this morning? May your Holy Spirit work in premier power that we can understand what you're saying to us and then apply it rightly with the appropriate amount of of nuance and care and honesty. We love you so much, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you can see, we have, in my view, a, a desperately sad topic this morning, something that's affected pretty much everyone, either directly or indirectly in our day. Statistics concerning divorce in the United States are kind of difficult to pin down, but some of the most reliable data that I have seen suggests that the U.S. divorce rate in 1960 was around 25%, and then in 2014, that number was around 50%. And that 50% rate has dropped a little bit in the past Eight years, probably because far less people now are getting married. And if you combine that dipping popularity of marriage with a higher divorce rate, you will find that in 2014, less than half of U.S. adults were married, which was a brand new social reality in our country. For the first time in the history of the United States, a random adult you see at the grocery store is more likely than not to be single or possibly single again. Comparatively, in 1960, around 75% of U.S. adults were married. So the bottom line, though, is that we've been divorced, or there's divorce in our families, or we know friends who have been divorced or are going through a divorce right now, which means that the cumulative pain in our society related to divorce is honestly breathtaking in its scope. And my heart goes out to those of you who feel that pain most acutely. I don't know if I've ever had a more difficult time prepping a message. And I've I've been all discombobulated this morning because of the sheer sense that I have of the pain related to this subject. I'm so, so sorry. I've been praying for you this week. This was... Such a heavy message to prepare, such a heavy subject to think about. Our journey this morning will be similar to last week's journey when we considered the subject of lust. So two 
Two bangers in a row here. My goodness gracious. It'll be a similar journey. Painful at times. There will be some painful moments in this message. But I also think, as you'll see, there's a lot of hope as well. And that's the way of Jesus, in case you're wondering. Fully honest. Jesus is always honest, but redemptive. He's always desirous of our good. He's always ready to heal and to restore. So, to those of you who are experiencing that acute pain, hang in there and see what God might do this morning. And to those of you who do need to experience perhaps some conviction this morning, a loud blast, you might say, of the uh, heavenly Vuvuzelas. I've got the, the World Cup on my mind. It starts this morning. If you don't know what a Vuvuzela is, just Google it. If that describes you, if you need a divine wake-up call, I hope that you get that conviction this morning for the sake of genuine repentance and restoration. So two reflections this morning. Number one, divorce hurts. And then number two, Jesus heals. Divorce hurts, but Jesus heals. Let's start with that first reflection. Divorce hurts. Why is divorce so painful? Often, I would say surprisingly so, especially in cases where we feel like divorce will kind of solve a set of difficult or, or seemingly unworkable circumstances. Even then, why is it so painful? Take a look at verse 31. Again, this is Jesus speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Once again, Jesus says, you have heard it said or it was also said, statements refer to the Torah, they refer us back to the law, certainly very well heard and known, as Jesus mentions, in Jewish society. So here in verse 31, Jesus is specifically quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, in which the law appears to permit men to divorce their wives, and that day... Um, Men generally had agency when it came to divorce. The law appears to permit men to divorce their wives by writing them a a certificate and then sending them on their way. So this is Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 24, verse 1 that Jesus is quoting here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, dot, dot, dot. There's more to it than that. But do you see how the Mosaic law outlines and appears to permit this process for divorce? And eventually what happened is on account of this statement in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and other factors, permissiveness about divorce emerged in Jesus' day that was even supported by some religious leaders. Divorce became relatively common, and the reasons for divorce, which again were almost always catalyzed by the husband, were relatively inconsequential. They didn't matter that much, although different schools of Jewish thought had different and sometimes conflicting views on this. Cue up a confrontation between Jesus in some religious leaders that you can find later in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. You can see a, a parallel account as well in Mark, chapter 10. So let's step into Matthew, chapter 19, for a few minutes, 
starting in verse 3. You can even turn to that passage if you want. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The Pharisees were not thrilled with Jesus' meteoric rise and the authority that he seemed to possess that people were talking about. So they wanted to test Jesus concerning the details of the Mosaic Law. At the time, there was no better test than to expose Jesus' views on such a sensitive subject like divorce. They figured they were probably more permissive than Jesus on something that was becoming relatively popular. Note their for-any-cause language. And they thought that they had the law on their side. So it was the perfect gotcha opportunity for the sake of cancellation. You want to cancel somebody in their ministry? Find something that's gaining steam, especially if you think they have an opposing view, and then expose them. But, look at verses 4 through 6. Instead of, they wanted to play a bit of a quiz ball game, but instead of playing the Mosaic Law quiz ball game, Jesus turned their confrontation into a why discussion intended to reveal the heart of the law. So they want to have a what discussion. Jesus turned it into a why discussion. Hey guys, this Deuteronomy chapter 24 passage that you seem to be alluding to, the one that outlines this, this process for divorce. How do you read that passage in light of Genesis chapter 2? in which God, the author of creation, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, that not man separate. How do you read Deuteronomy chapter 4 in light of Genesis chapter 2? Seeing how this statement from God the author of creation, does not square very well with a permissive, for any cause view of divorce, the Pharisees really did not have a good comeback. So they simply asked Jesus in verse 7 of, chapter, of Matthew chapter 19, okay then, well, hmm, this is uncomfortable. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And then Jesus answers that question in verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, as he's just sown, it was not so. You see the brilliance of, of Jesus' response to the Pharisees? is a brilliant response. Moses, he was one of their primary spiritual heroes. He, he was the guy. But they also believed that Moses had nothing on God's authority and intent, making it impossible that Moses wrote up this certificate of divorce provision to promote or to facilitate fluid, male-controlled marriage dynamics. Those kinds of dynamics were flagrant, I mean flagrant contradictions of the one-flesh nature and posture of God's design for marriage. So what was Moses doing? Under God's guidance, Moses put this divorce provision into the law 
because he needed to create a just and civil means of dealing with heart-hardened depravity that was already happening, sexual depravity, etc., and causing a lot of divorce, which was particularly harmful to women in ancient Near Eastern culture. Thus, the certificate of divorce, which was intended to elevate a woman's prospects of being remarried, functioning as a kind of legal release from her husband, and prevent her from perpetually remaining single again, you might say, and therefore economically vulnerable in ancient Near Eastern culture, a dynamic that remained an issue in Jesus' day. And by the way, and this is really important, one of the ways that you can tell when God's standards are being distorted is when the distortion clearly advantages those with more social power and disadvantages those with less power. That is the sign. And notice that the divorce law distortion peddled by the Pharisees very much advantaged, if that's the right word, the men and disadvantaged women, which is one of the many reasons why Jesus just wasn't here for that at all. We've been in Matthew chapter 19 for a bit now, but check this out. Now we can understand, now that we've looked at Matthew chapter 19, now we can understand Jesus's, but I say to you statement back in Matthew chapter 5. We went on a little bit of a field trip, but now we have some clarity in Matthew chapter 5. Let's start again with verse 31 of chapter 5 and, and read both verses together. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Is this a radical new teaching from Jesus? No, it's not. He's just, yet again, recapturing the heart of the law. He's recapturing the wise. They were always there, but they were getting a bit blurry. And you see that Jesus is teaching about divorce in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 and everywhere else really has to do with upholding God's beautiful design for marriage. That's the point. The point isn't really, you know, are you divorced or getting a divorce? Well, then you should feel terrible. Here's, here's your scarlet letter. That's not the main point here. But you wouldn't necessarily know it based on how some church communities or individual Christians have treated divorcees regardless of cause or signs of repentance. If you're handing out scarlet letters to people who have experienced divorce for whatever the reason might be, you are doing something very different than what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you understand that? Here's Jesus' actual point. God designed marriage to be a one flesh union in which a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, quoting Jesus again in Matthew chapter 19, and he was, of course, quoting Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus is saying, if you want to live well in this world, if you want to flourish 
as you walk with me, as my disciples. By the grace of God, stay married until death parts you. Conversely, if you pursue, pursue divorce, you are tearing something that's not designed to be torn, and accordingly, you're in for a lot of heartache and pain. Divorce undermines God's plan, and undermines God's plan, and, and therefore undermines human flourishing. Jesus is saying these things. Because he is so for us, and he's the good shepherd that by nature wants to protect us from danger and pain. That's why he says hard things. But you wouldn't know it these days, based on some of what I would say is kind of, I don't know, laziness and, and, and cultural appropriation I'm seeing in Western Christianity pertaining to divorce. There's more and more open-handed permissiveness concerning divorce, and, and increasingly, I would say, kind of laissez-faire, let's let private things be private mentality. I, I suppose, because we think our approach is more compassionate than Jesus' standards. But if our standards are less than Jesus' standards, we're not helping anybody. In fact, we're causing harm. So no to scarlet letters, please. No to permissivism. Yes, I'm saying yes to Jesus's serious, yet very compassionate standards founded in God's beautiful design and laid out for our good. Why the one exception, though? Why this allowance by Jesus for divorce in situations involving Sexual immorality, as he puts it. Any, any sexual activity outside of marriage with emphasis here on sexual intimacy with someone who isn't your spouse. Why this one allowance? Because of the function of sexual intimacy within a marriage. According to God's plan, according to God's design, sex is intended to consummate and then uphold a one-flesh union which, as the language itself suggests, is a physically intimate union. So sexual immorality essentially tears apart a marriage, making divorce a possibility in Jesus' mind, while also not making it inevitable. I hope you, if you haven't heard of this, let me tell you about it. God has and will continue to restore grievously broken marriages. Plus, repentance and forgiveness make a lot of sense in light of the grace and the forgiveness that we've received from Jesus, despite our unfaithfulness to him. Pastorally, I think it's really wise in cases of sexual immorality in a marriage to discuss topics like grace and forgiveness first before moving on to the topic of potential divorce. But at the very least, we can see the value Jesus places you see this on sexual intimacy? Thus, the prohibitions that we discussed last week and now the allowances we have here for divorce in circumstances involving sexual immorality. The purpose and the function of God's design for sex matters so much to God that divorce is permissible 
in cases of infidelity. That is a staggering allowance from Jesus, considering God's design for marriage. And my goodness, does this push back against this idea that we're kind of adopting here in the West that we can simply flatten sex into a a pleasure-seeking vehicle that we use according to our own discretion. Divorce hurts because an unterrible thing, a thing that's designed to be unterrible, is being torn. Sexual immorality hurts, especially in the context of marriage, because it's tearing a supposedly unterrible thing. And then the pain radiates to everybody communally connected to your marriage, your family, your church family, my goodness, your kids, your friends, and so on and so forth. We are communal beings, church. So the effects of something like divorce are always more communal than we like to believe. And that's one of the reasons why divorce tends to be more painful than we anticipate when we believe it will solve problems, even when we believe it's biblically permissible. The pain of divorce just radiates broadly and, and radiates Horizontally, a lot of you have experienced that. All right, can we please get a little bit more hopeful? I mean, Chipper, can we get more hopeful? Can we get a, a bit more nuanced? This is raising a lot of questions. I understand that. But I mean, so far, dude, this has been a bit of a bummer. And you're painting with fairly broad strokes. Yes and yes. Yes, we can get more hopeful. Yes, we can get more nuanced. And that brings us to our second reflection. Jesus heals. Divorce is very painful, but I have really good news. Jesus heals. In cases where divorce is either being considered or has already occurred, consider the vast spectrum of healing that needs to take place. It's kind of remarkable. Those who are in conflict with one another, you know, maybe they're considering divorce, but they haven't gotten a divorce yet. Man, do they need to be reconciled? Those who have done wrong need to be convicted of what they've done, that they might repent and seek forgiveness from the Lord and from those they've wronged. I'm thinking mainly of those who have divorced their spouse for a reason other than sexual immorality. Those who have been wronged need comfort and grace. I'm thinking about people abandoned by their spouse because the spouse wanted to pursue another man or another woman or because the spouse thought that things were just too hard, or because the spouse thought that, well, you know, the spark just isn't there anymore. I'm thinking of the the kids of any divorce, regardless of the cause, whose very sense of existence is often destabilized, because, again, we are designed by God to be communal creatures. I'm thinking of extended family members and in-laws and friends. All of these people need healing. Do you see how vast that is? And here's the really good news. In every one of those circumstances, Jesus is more than up for the task. In every one of them. And in every one of those circumstances, Jesus' methodology is effectively the same. Redirection. Redirection. To those of you 
And I understand that the probability of this is relatively high in a room like this. So those of you who are thinking about a divorce, maybe it's passed through your mind, maybe you're fantasizing about it, maybe it's already on the table. Maybe you talked about it last night. And let's, let's assume here that this possible divorce is not related to infidelity, and, and let's assume here that this possible divorce is not related to abandonment, which for various reasons I do believe includes abuse, and it's another possible allowance for divorce that comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but that's not really our, our focus this morning. I'm mainly talking here about couples who are just in the pit. You know, they're, they're feeling like they're always arguing, they're feeling like they're always, by, they're always being hurt by each other, or maybe they just, they just feel like roommates with zero romantic spark. If this describes you, here's the question. How do you become the kind of person, despite these circumstances, who stays married? Which is really Jesus' point here. He's, again, he's upholding the beauty and the value of staying married, even more than he's saying, don't get divorced. You know, do we, do we become those kinds of people primarily by, by you know, just kind of like, looking at our spouse more intensely, trying to conjure up more passionate feelings out of thin air. Is that how we do it? Is that how we stay married? No. Sometimes you see this kind of thing in Hallmark rom-coms. Did, did you know, this is free, did you know that Hallmark produced 31 brand new, fully original holiday movies just this year? Sometimes you see this kind of thing in these Hallmark rom-coms where the, you know, the couple is going through a really, really rough patch around the holidays, you know, and, the, and the troubled wife looks back at pictures of her husband's you know, from like the 80s and concludes, oh wow, he did look great back then, and then you know, Mariah Carey starts singing something, and there's lights as if from a disco ball that appear out of nowhere, and then you know, the feelings start returning. Listen, the emphasis there is on the word did. He, he did look like that back then, but he looks different now, okay? <laughs> Do we become these kinds of people primarily by looking more intensely at ourselves? You know, maybe if I, maybe if I modified my behavior in this way or that way, maybe if, I, maybe if I changed the way that I look, that will help me stay married. No. We stay married not so much by looking at our spouse or by looking at ourselves, but primarily by walking with Jesus and effectively looking at him, redirecting our gazes away from ourselves and from one another. Whereas I like to put it, when I officiate weddings, we love our spouse the best and we love Jesus the very most. That doesn't sound particularly romantic at weddings. It's always like, hmm, okay. But the thing is, when we love Jesus the most, it means that, it means that we're being captivated by the magnificence of his grace. It means that we're beholding the Jesus that, while we were still sinners, died for us, displaying the magnificence of God's love for those who put their hope in him. It means that we're cherishing the heavenly groom 
who stays married to his bride, the church, despite its big-time problems. See, for example, Revelation chapter 19 and Ephesians chapter 5, and I don't know, the entire book of Hosea. And in doing so, when we're looking at that Jesus, we are far, far better equipped to stay married to our spouses and begin once again to to serve them sacrificially and become less sensitive to perceived slights. Troubled spouses in troubled marriages, the rescue plan mainly has to do with freshly beholding the one who rescues us. Yes, there are some very helpful books out there with very helpful tips. Yes, wisdom from from close friends can be very helpful. Wisdom from mentors can be very helpful, including, including, by the way, single friends who can nonetheless still read their Bibles and speak truth to you. Yes, there there are marriage cruises now that you can go on featuring... Christian bands that were sort of famous 25 years ago. (laughs) And perhaps those can be helpful too. But the main thing, the main thing is being much with Jesus, spending time with Him daily and desperately. If you want to see Jesus change your marriage, focus more on Jesus than your marriage. In fact, when we focus too much on our marriages, we honestly kind of suffocate them. They are not meant to bear the kind of weight that Jesus can bear. To those of you who have done wrong, I'm mainly thinking here of people who have abandoned their spouse for clearly very selfish reasons, such as to pursue someone else that they found more interesting or more attractive or you know, whatever the case may be. Or perhaps based on what we talked about last week, maybe you haven't actually done this, but you sure are fantasizing about it. I am not interested this morning in handing out scarlet letters to brand and dog you for the rest of your life. Because Jesus isn't interested in doing that. But if it hasn't happened yet, my prayer for you this morning, my hope, as, as countercultural as this might sound, I really do hope that you experience real conviction on account of the very real damage you have caused or are causing. And by the way, in verse 32, Jesus appears to accentuate the nature of this damage by telling us that if a husband divorces his wife, it was usually the husband that had, again, the agency to initiate a divorce in Jesus' day, That when a husband did this, in doing so, he makes her commit adultery. This this is one of the more difficult verses to translate and understand in the Sermon on the Mount and in the book of Matthew. But here's the sense of it, as best as I can tell. And there is some debate about this. Remarriage was basically expected after divorce. That was socially normative and, and pretty much essential for women, as we already talked about, otherwise they would be economically vulnerable. And in putting his ex-wife in this position, the now ex-husband is basically making her commit adultery, or perhaps 
A better translation would be making her a victim of adultery. So adultery is happening now in in the technical sense because she is now with another husband who is not the husband she originally married. But the moral responsibility for this situation lies on her ex-husband who catalyzed the divorce. I don't think, again, we can talk about this more broadly, I do not think that Jesus is actually commenting here at all on the moral permissibility of divorce in situations where a, a woman's husband leaves her, such as to be with another woman. Instead, Jesus is saying, when this happens, When this sort of thing happens, ex-husband, you are morally responsible for the fallout of all of the damage caused by catalyzing this divorce. And we have another clause here at the end of verse 32, apparently indicating that if a a woman has abandoned her marriage, assumably for reasons other than sexual immorality, that marrying her would mean committing adultery as well. I do believe that remarriage can be a possibility when your spouse leaves you for the reasons we just described, you know, to pursue someone else, you know, they're unwilling to deal with the difficulties of marriage or, or boredom. If, if a spouse leaves you for those kinds of reasons, I do think that remarriage is a possibility. But again, that's not our focus this morning, and I am happy to chat about that very difficult subject beyond the confines of our time today. But the bottom line is that the scope of the damage that occurs when you abandon your spouse is enormous. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. That's the headline. So if you've done this and you feel absolutely nothing, you're just sort of like whatever about it, based on what we saw last week in our passage on lust, your spiritual life might be in grave danger. Again, we talked about this last week in the context of lust and in Jesus' exhortation to do violence to your sin lest your whole body be thrown into hell. So the best thing that could happen to you this morning is to experience conviction and in a sense, this word is kind of discombobulated these days, in a sense, shame that drives you to the feet of Jesus in repentance that he might forgive you and heal you. That's the best case scenario. And then when you get that forgiveness, which is miraculously guaranteed in Jesus on account of his body, broken for us and blood shed for us, guess what? The shame is entirely taken away. It is gone. And in its place, what do you get instead? You get boldness and joy that comes from true cleansing. You need to experience the conviction and shame, the redirection, to get the washing. That's how it works. And then you're totally free. No scarlet letter. You know, there might be some hard things on the to-do list after this, reconciliation maybe with your spouse if you're still married, or you may need to humble yourself in repentance before your ex-spouse, even if full reconciliation is no longer possible. But the news is, you're free. No more shame. No more guilt. No need to, to wallow in self-focused despair. Some of you have done wrong, but you have repented. And here's a reminder that you need this morning. Satan, his whole goal all day, every day is to discourage, and he wants to trap us permanently in the pangs of despair. So here's what you need to hear this morning. Those of you who have done wrong and repented, 
You are free. Jesus has redeemed you. No scarlet letter. Finally, to those of you who have been wronged, I'll make this briefer than I would desire, but I'll say a few things anyway. To those of you who have been wronged, I am so, so sorry. The pain that you're experiencing, the grief you're experiencing is, in my opinion, up there with the pain and the grief experienced when a loved one dies. It's often gut-wrenching, searing pain that stays with you for, for such a long time. I've seen those who have experienced divorce, you know, either their, their spouse has left them or, or no, maybe they're the kids of a divorce. I've seen people who have experienced divorce like this compare it, quote, to the pangs of death. Please know this morning that Jesus is for you. Please know this morning that Jesus is for you. Please know that the Lord really does heal the brokenhearted and, and, and bind up their wounds, Psalm 147, even the really big wounds. Please know that God is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Please know that despite your pain, and this is really important, the God who began a good work in you will nonetheless bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 1. Your, your life does not become like this big waste after divorce, by no means. Your life is still very much live, worth living, it, and God is still at work, working through your pain, through your grieving to transform you, and often to minister to other people. That kind of pain hurts, but it equips you to minister powerfully to others. And finally, and I will pretty much end here, to those of you who are kids of divorce, maybe you're still a kid, or you're an adult kid, I want to say a few things. God is especially for you. You see Jesus' heart for children all over the Gospels. He is with you. He loves you. And marriage is still worth pursuing, despite the carnage that you've seen. Cynicism is totally understandable in your case. But marriage can still be, by God's grace and redemptive power, a very wonderful thing. Who knows if it's part of God's plan for you, but if it is, he can still use it, even though every marriage is imperfect. Amen. Every week at City Church,